Welcome to the sixth and final episode in a special series of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance's Local Energy Rules podcast, focused on public power, utility companies owned by the cities they serve. Consumer utilities. The people want solar. Well, this is a totally different model. Run a more efficient operation. The local input. Democratic governance. To demand something better. 100% renewable energy. Publicly accountable resource. This series, called The Promise and Peril of Publicly Owned Power, responds to an upswell of interest in city-owned utilities. In addition to clean energy, advocates cite local control, lowering costs, and reinvestment in the local economy among the major reasons they want public instead of private power companies. So far in this series, we've shared why communities are pursuing public power, what specific benefits are found in the public power model, why it's hard to win a municipalization campaign, how communities can make gains even in failure, and a few examples of how public power can fall short. In this episode, we explore what alternatives communities have to public power takeover that can still advance their clean energy and environmental justice aims. I'm John Farrell, director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is episode six in our multi-part series, The Promise and Peril of Publicly Owned Power. It's a production of Local Energy Rules, a bi-weekly podcast sharing powerful stories about local, renewable energy. In the arc of this series, we've intended to capture the desire many communities have for more power over their energy system and the promise they see in public ownership. We've also explored the difficulty of success and even the need for ongoing vigilance of any utility, public or private, to ensure it continues to serve the public interest. Fortunately, a municipalization campaign isn't the only strategy available to a community that wants to take charge of its energy future. With the help of the Local Energy Rules Archive, I'm going to walk through five measures communities can take to get more accountability from their electricity provider or to meet their needs themselves. These ideas come with a disclaimer. In some cases, such as Community Choice Energy, there's as much of an uphill battle to get state legislation as there would be to run a local municipalization campaign. In other situations, Advocates have acknowledged that these alternative strategies are necessary, but not sufficient to replace the power of local control. Judge for yourself which ones seem like they'd work best in your community. One option comes so close to public power that I've often called it municipalization light. It's called community choice aggregation or community choice energy, and it typically requires an enabling state law. For a deep dive, see ILSR's report on community choice published in February 2020, or David Sue's interview on the Volts podcast in March 2022. We'll have links to both in the show notes. The short version is that community choice allows a city to become the energy purchaser on behalf of its residential and small business electricity customers. Then the city gets to decide where the electricity comes from, usually buying more clean energy at a lower price than the incumbent utility. Marin Clean Energy, the first successful community choice program in California, provides a good example. When they took charge in 2010, they immediately offered customers a higher share of renewable energy at a lower price than the incumbent utility Pacific Gas and Electric. I interviewed CEO Don Weiss for Local Energy Rules episode 19 about the project back in 2014. It was absolutely worth the effort because we've been able to achieve many of the goals that we set out and actually even exceed many of the the goals that we set out as far as getting more renewable energy onto the grid and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And we've been able to do that by purchasing more than double the amount of renewable energy that customers were getting before and offering rates that are competitive and in most cases lower for customers than what they would have been paying with the incumbent utility. We're able to offer competitively priced renewable energy because we have low operating costs. We are a small and nimble shop here in the community. We procure in a very prudent way. We are careful about not overspending, but maximizing renewables within our portfolio. Another key factor is that we don't have shareholder profits to account for. Uh, Any revenue that comes into the agency is used to keep rates low or to help fund other local programs that benefit the community, like solar rebate programs for low-income individuals, energy efficiency programs, electric vehicle charging, that sort of thing. We have a deep green local renewable development fund that's been created by the customers in our service territory that have chosen 
the deep green energy product. That's a 100% renewable energy offering that we offer to customers. And 50% of all of the deep green customer revenue goes into a local renewable development fund to pay for the pre-development costs of local projects that we will build and own within our jurisdiction. Initially, Marin's Community Choice Program, like other early programs in California, relied heavily on buying renewable energy credits and renewable energy from more remote areas. In subsequent years, the program has increased its focus on local procurement, aligning with the more ambitious efforts of other programs in the state. For instance, Redwood Clean Energy, another California Community Choice Agency, found a way to marry their authority over clean energy with their local forestry industry, paying for biomass-generated electricity. CEO Matthew Marshall explained the opportunity in our early 2020 conversation for episode 99. We serve the county of Humboldt in Northern California and all the incorporated cities within the county. And so we're kind of in the far north of California on the coast, about five or so hours north of San Francisco. We really kind of have set the priority of not just kind of saying, hey, we want to do renewable energy procurement and hit the state targets early. I mean, I think that's an important goal, but we want to kind of look at ways to both achieve that while also providing broader benefits to the local community. We're, I think, still the number one forest products producing county in the state of California. And there's still a strong part of our economy that really depends on our our forests and working lands. And then a piece of that puzzle is local biomass facilities that utilize mill wastes and other wood waste to generate electricity. And that's a community resource. Redwood Energy's efforts weren't just about tapping a local resource, but about increasing their self-reliance. The community really wanted to focus on the use of local renewables. Those are existing facilities. And so we could afford to initially pay a little bit more to basically provide that power locally. And it started out as sort of a way to keep local jobs and local generation going. And I think as actually we've been seeing the energy markets changing, even you know just in the last couple of years, the ability to have baseload renewables and to have local generation as we're looking at things like public safety power shutoffs and the technical potential to keep local generation powering our community. One of the things that's very exciting about this, and and we've gotten a lot of support and funding for this project from the California Energy Commission, is the opportunity to do this kind of a multi-customer microgrid setup really opens up the opportunity to look at neighborhoods or areas where maybe there's multiple hospitals or, or other kinds of situations where It isn't sort of like what you might say, typical microgrid, where it's a single customer in their own kind of campus that they can island and isolate from the grid, but be able to operate a whole section of the grid that includes multiple customers really will hopefully broaden the range of opportunities where you could deploy microgrids to provide resiliency and emergency response capabilities. East Bay Clean Energy, serving Alameda County, California, and associated municipalities, leveraged its local control with a local development business plan. The plan laid out how the Community Choice Program would redirect the electricity savings of switching to local power into other local initiatives. There's a great quote from the program launch press release from Reverend Ken Chambers, the pastor of the Westside Missionary Baptist Church in Oakland. Quote, We need to create opportunities for low-income people traditionally shut out of the clean energy economy. We need to train and employ local people like the formerly incarcerated and people of color with family-sustaining wage jobs so that we can afford to stay in the Bay Area." To learn more about the business development plan, I spoke with Jessica Tovar, coordinator of the East Bay Clean Power Alliance for episode 98 in 2020. Really, the local development business plan, our point for, for advocating for that was really the creation of jobs and stimulating our local economy, and at the same time, really providing benefits that benefit people who are otherwise shut out of the clean energy economy. It's not just limited to wind and solar, but it includes things such as energy efficiency, for example, and other benefits like creating opportunities for people to start shared solar programs, for example, and really kind of opening the door and having a plan for the different options and opportunities that we could be actually having more clean energy incentives in the East Bay. So, for example, creating like a community innovation fund to begin funding 
projects, such as a community shared solar program or cooperative. Other things that are in there is like energy efficiency kind of incentives, like on bill repayment, for example, so that we can actually do energy efficiency retrofits to low-income people's homes. You know, a lot of homes in the Bay Area are old and obviously contribute to a lot of energy waste. And so to begin to be able to upgrade our homes and actually reduce that waste and really acknowledge that it's expensive to do those things, but if we have this opportunity of paying for that kind of program through our savings, then that's beneficial to to low-income folks in the East Bay area. There's a lot of stuff in the local development business plan, but one of the things is there's something called community benefit adders. And so an adder would be to incentivize if there is family sustaining wage or union wage job creation. So there's incentive for that. If you're like doing a particular project in a low income community, there's a low income community benefit adder. There's also an adder for storage, for example. So there's all these different opportunities to incentivize. And this is something that even though it's created for our community in the East Bay Area, Alameda County, it's still also a useful tool for other communities to look at opportunities that go beyond installing wind and solar energy in your community, right? And as you mentioned, feed and tariffs are important because if we're incentivizing our municipal buildings to become solar, then we're able to provide solar energy into our East Bay Community Energy Program that then local people could be buying that energy. And, you know, over time, that stable energy, it's local clean energy. It's, it's a way to stimulate our economy, create jobs, and create that clean energy infrastructure that we want so badly to combat climate change and all these other injustices in our community. As of this year, the Community Innovation Fund has only distributed $160,000 far less than anticipated when the Community Choice Program launched. However, the agency promises over $2 million in additional funding over the next three years. Another interesting use of Community Choice Energy is from Ohio, where several communities that are part of the Southeast Ohio Public Energy Council opted to add a fee to their electricity bills to fund local clean energy projects. Matthew Roberts, Information and Outreach Director at Upgrade Ohio, explained in 2018 on episode 56 how the new fee would work in the city of Athens. So the fee is 0.2 cents per kilowatt hour, and the average Athens customer in the Southeast Ohio Public Energy Council's electric aggregation program uses between 800 and 900 kilowatt hours a month. So the fee would add up somewhere between $1.60 and $1.80 per month per customer. This is for households and small businesses that don't fit into the larger energy user categories. All of the fees, now that it has passed, will be collected and used explicitly for solar projects on city-owned and public-serving buildings in the city of Athens. We're anticipating about $80,000 to $90,000 per year, and the aggregation program has about, at any given time, 70 to 80 percent of the residents of Athens City involved in the aggregation program. The rest of the 20 percent or more are either in their own supply contract, so they're not in the aggregation program, or they simply opt out of the aggregation program and get the default rate by the utility. And over each year, we're anticipating that we can build uh, 60 kilowatt installations, saving roughly $10,000 per year throughout the service life of each system. And uh, again, each year we have that fee to use from, so the savings will really compound, creating a big benefit for the city of Athens. What we like to point to is that because the solar systems will be installed on public serving buildings, this will actually be a net benefit to all taxpayers, whether you're in the aggregation program or not. And that's because the city of Athens will be saving on their utility bills, supplying their energy needs with the solar first, and then going to the grid to supply the rest of the energy that they may need. 
And that frees up money within the city's budget to use on other programs and services that benefit everyone. What we're doing pretty soon in the next few months is going to the community again and asking, what's the best way to use the fee money? We've been playing around with the idea of using the fee money to attract new capital so that way we can leverage our annual fee for bigger and better projects. But as this carbon fee was initiated through a democratic process and voting, we also want to honor that and create public forums for people to contribute how they think this carbon fee should be spent. If they're interested in simply taking as much that was gathered each year and spending only that for projects, then we'll honor that. But we also want to share our ideas, knowing that we've been in this industry space for a little while, showing the value of kind of leveraging that that money for more capital. Through October 2022, the Athens Public Solar Fund has collected nearly $200,000, and solar installations are planned for the community center and the city pool parking lot. Even in states that don't have laws supporting community choice programs, cities can work with electric utilities to develop alternatives. In Milwaukee, Oregon, a suburb of Portland, clean energy leaders in the city didn't have access to community choice from state legislation, so they pursued direct talks with the utility, Portland General Electric. Natalie Rogers, the city's sustainability coordinator, explained how the city was able to get carbon-free electricity for municipal buildings. Our utility, PGE, does have a product called Green Future Impact, which is for large commercial industrial, essentially large loads to take advantage of. And what that is, is it's an aggregation product where for a 10 or 15 year contract, they essentially built out or are building out a new solar array east of the Cascades. And so Milwaukee signed on for 100% of our city load for this product. So we're at 100% operational carbon-free electricity, which is really exciting. And other large commercial entities can take advantage of it if they don't want to place solar arrays or have any generation on site, but they still want the value of carbon-free electricity. Mark Gamba, Milwaukee mayor, jumped in to share that the city was partnering with the utility on legislation to enable them to offer this renewable electricity option to all residents of the community. We also have a bill in conjunction with PGE this year is to be able to negotiate for renewable energy for the entire city, not just city operations, but for all residents, all businesses, beside maybe uh, two or three of the large industrial businesses. And instead of having that be a opt-in system where people can say, yes, I would like to join that, the city council would negotiate that deal Everyone would have it, and if you chose not to have it, you could opt out. And it's really a giant difference in how many people will be involved in something like that. They've been doing that in Utah now for a while, and the difference is pretty extraordinary in the number of the uptake. So what that does that's very beneficial to ratepayers is that it drives down the price initially of whatever the premium is. But as Natalie has just pointed out, the premiums on these renewable systems are dropping dramatically all the time. One of the things that we would like in this bill is that if if our green energy becomes cheaper than their their base load, that we actually benefit from that, that our citizens actually get a, a reduction. We'll see how that works out. Oregon House Bill 2021 was signed by the governor in July 2021 to allow this potential city utility partnership to move forward. You can listen to my full conversation with Natalie and Mark in Local Energy Rules episode 131. In all, nine states offer cities the option of community choice. The full list and numerous examples of the policy in action are in ILSR's February 2020 report on community choice energy. Communities typically only pursue public power once they've exhausted efforts to win support from incumbent utilities, but another approach is to change the incentives for the utilities. In 49 out of 50 states, utilities make money by spending on power lines, power plants, or energy distribution, instead of by meeting goals for reliability, clean energy, and other metrics. One state has changed that formula in a decision described by the news outlet Hawaii Tech as, quote, a landmark ruling for the entire nation putting Hawaii at the leading edge for realigning the electric utility business, 
with a 100% clean energy future, end quote. On episode 130, Isaac Morawaki of Earth Justice explained how the concept of performance-based regulation has the promise to change what the utility does for its customers. I think folks generally familiar with the clean energy scene understand that the traditional utility, the, the model of which goes back 100 plus years at this point, is, is basically based on this cost plus or cost of service model of making money, where the more capital they invest in building and owning stuff, the more profit they make. Now, now that paradigm worked for, let's call it the industrial age, where we needed to build the modern grid and, and one of the wonders of the world that we see today, but it's ill-suited going forward for the new clean energy informational digital age, I would say, of the 21st century, where the utilities are continually on this treadmill of building more and more stuff. And yet, again, in, in the climate era, in the clean energy era, it's more about downsizing our footprint and building more efficiently and smartly rather than just more for its own sake. So that's the fundamental incentive that we need to turn around, and that's the heart of performance-based regulation. There was a study that was commissioned by the legislature for $2 million bucks about what's the best model going forward. How, how do we change the system? Uh, and they considered co-ops, they considered munis, they considered divestiture and all that. And I think that the answer that came out of that, not to say that it was the end all, but certainly the, the commission, I think, had independently come to a similar conclusion that working with what we got in terms of vertically integrated, privately owned utility, but aligning or realigning the incentives was the, the best way to get the most bang for the buck in the nearer term. So what will Hawaii's investor-owned utility get paid to do? They're going to get paid to be more efficient. They're going to get paid to deliver service and performance along the lines of what the customers want and in line with interest mandates like our 100% clean energy mandate, our RPS. And we can get into the the nuts and bolts, but traditionally, utilities come in for rate cases every so often and increase their rates. And it's driven, again, by increased investments on which the utilities tack on a rate of return. And that's the engine that ever points upwards as far as increasing the utilities' revenues and customers' rates. So instead of that engine, the fundamental beginning, the the foundation for performance-based regulation, I think in principle, in general, as well as how Hawaii implemented is what we call a revenue cap or revenue index in short. And basically, instead of ever increasing rates through ever increasing rate cases, and mind you, these rates always go one way, one direction. No utility has ever come in for a rate case to decrease rates, right? Instead of that, a treadmill, we're just going to cap utility revenues and keep it there for a long period of time. In this case, in Hawaii's case, five years, we push for more, eight years, but it's going to be five years for starters. And then the utility is turned loose to basically find any kind of efficiencies, cost savings, so that anything, any savings underneath that cap or that index, which is externally calculated driven, will go straight into the utility's pocket. And that is is said to mimic a competitive environment. And as close, I guess, as monopoly utility regulation is going to get, where the utility is basically left to its creative competitive juices to basically maximize its profits and increase efficiencies across the board. So that's key. And and, and how does that work in terms of creating customer value? Well, well, whereas traditionally the utility would automatically reach for that centralized fossil fuel plant as a way to boost its profits and its revenues, now it will consider, hopefully on a more level playing field, distributed energy resources, non-wire alternatives, alternatives basically to traditional utility infrastructure investments as a way to get the job done to reach our clean energy goals without spending utility and ultimately ratepayer money. And so again, leveling the playing field between all options, delinking from that traditional cost plus engine of just more utility stuff is the fundamental premise and starting point for performance regulation. And then on top of that, once we have an idea of, okay, there's certain areas where we want better targeted utility performance, whether it's faster interconnection, whether it's greater customer satisfaction, 
where there's more sort of attention to low and moderate income needs, then you can establish what they call performance incentive mechanisms or PIMS for short to drive utility performance in those targeted areas. But I want to emphasize that unlike I think some people when they think about PBR, they automatically think about PIMS, the, the performance incentive side. What we really need to focus first is that foundation of breaking the link between cost of service and, and utility revenues first. And that's what Hawaii did for sure as a foundation. Another way to change the utility business model is that electric utilities could become benefit corporations, which would commit them to rigorous standards for sustainability, accountability, and transparency. However, of the more than 100 investor-owned utilities in the United States, only one is chartered as a B corporation, Green Mountain Power in Vermont. Could more utilities use this triple bottom line in corporation structure? Mary Powell, at the time, CEO of Green Mountain Power, explained back in episode 38. From my perspective, I'm actually amazed there are not more organizations, whether they're utilities or non-utilities, that are not actively pursuing something like a benefit corporation status. And the reason I say that is because in my business experience, which is, of course, I've been in this business for quite a while, but I've been in many other industries, you know, what I think it really drives home is that when you focus on the customer, the community, and the broader suite of stakeholders, that is where you find the real opportunities to think differently about how you serve society, how you serve your customers. It's what breeds a lot of innovation in your thinking. And ultimately, my view is whoever your ultimate stakeholders or investors, you ultimately also become a stronger financial entity as a result of that type of focus. I think that through innovation and collaboration, no matter what industry space you're in, you get to better and different solutions and you're sort of guaranteed to always be forward looking and forward moving. So to me, being a benefit corporation really ties in very well with that. And I think particularly in a, in a business where you're providing at the end of the day, a really, really critical, essential product and service to society. To say that you want to go about doing that in a way that is providing benefits to multiple stakeholders and to the communities that you serve and the environment, I mean, my gosh, you know, it's, 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 to me, it's, it's very, very intuitive that any business would want to do that, but certainly that a utility would. My view is when change is going to happen, the best way is to embrace it and focus on how you can create a new and different value proposition for yourself and your company and for your customers as you look to the future. So on many levels, we're excited about the disruption that's happened in solar. Going back to 2008 and the energy vision that I launched as well as the fact that we actually led the discussion around valuing solar in our state by creating solar adder that we gave our customers that wanted to put rooftop solar on their homes. And we came to that through really aggressively analyzing how can we go in this direction that we know our customers want to go in, but do it in a way that creates value for all of the customers that we serve. Despite Mary's optimistic view of the intersection between being a utility company and serving the public, no other investor-owned utility has opted to become a B Corp in the intervening years. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about city-based equitable clean energy and climate funding and energy districts, a model for expanding clean energy access based on Depression-era soil and water conservation districts. You're listening to Episode 6 of a special series of the Local Energy Rules podcast, The Promise and Peril of Publicly Owned Power. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. 
And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. In some cases, communities decide to create their own clean energy funds instead of taking over the electric utility or pursuing any of the other alternatives I've mentioned so far. These cities, which all have ambitious climate action goals, are holding non-utility corporations accountable to their climate impacts and asking them to foot the bill. In Portland, Oregon, residents passed a ballot initiative creating the Portland Clean Energy Community Benefits Fund by levying a new tax on big corporations, pouring $30 million per year into equitable clean energy development. I spoke with Alan Hippolito at Verde, a nonprofit in the Cully neighborhood, on the eve of the 2018 election about the local renewable energy resolutions and community interests that led to the ballot initiative. Multnomah County and the city of Portland in 2017 advanced tandem 100% renewables resolutions. And Verde, along with a number of other frontline community-serving organizations like the Coalition of Communities of Color, Opal Environmental Justice Oregon, as well as a number of mainstream environmental organizations were able to access those processes and really move the ball forward on the commitments the two resolutions made to meeting the needs, addressing the priorities of low-income people and people of color. And we call them frontline communities because as your readers know well, low-income people and people of color are on the front lines of climate change in the United States and around the world. And there were really three commitments that we moved forward in the resolutions. The first was working with ratepayer advocates to protect low-income ratepayers from price impacts during these transitions. The second was advancing workforce and contracting diversity goals so that workers and businesses from all communities have the opportunity to participate in the development and construction of our renewable energy infrastructure. But then there was a third commitment that we think is especially connected to the Portland Clean Energy Initiative. As I mentioned, we did some pretty good work on advancing workforce and contracting equity commitments in the resolutions. But a lot of these projects that will be done will be very big scale projects. They'll be done by big contractors, big companies, working at big institutions. And there's a lot of reasons why that makes sense. But that's a difficult level for frontline communities to compete. And so we wanted to open up a new playing field for low-income people and people of color and their community-serving institutions to be a part of our transition to 100% renewables. And we call that community-based renewable energy infrastructure. And so each Resolution recognizes that that's a model to ensure that the benefits of our transition are made available to low-income people and people of color communities. And then each sets standards for what percentage of community-wide energy will come from community-based renewable energy infrastructure. Each of them says that by 2035, 2% of all the energy in the city of Portland, so not just things that are owned by the city outright or city buildings, but every unit of energy that's consumed within the city, that 2% of all of that will come from this kind of infrastructure. And then the city goes even further and says by 2050, 10%. So one out of every 10 units of energy in the city will be created by community-based renewable energy infrastructure. This is a massive transfer of generative capacity to the community level. And the Portland Clean Energy Initiative is really one of our first efforts to increase the toolkit, both in terms of funding as well as policy, to give communities the opportunity to respond to that challenge. The ballot measure provides funding for local priorities by taxing big retail businesses. It adds a 1% tax to their local gross receipts if they have sales of more than $1 billion nationally, and if they do at least a half million in sales per year in Portland. I asked Alan why the community targeted big retailers. 
Well, I would say a few things. First, uh, retailers have, from a climate perspective, have very long supply chains. Those supply chains have greenhouse gas emission impacts, and they're not accounted for. Second, retailers need to be physically in place to sell their goods and services to people. And so trying to evade what's often a made-up argument of, well, if this passes, we're going to leave. And thirdly, Oregon is actually a very business-friendly place. Seven out of every 10 tax dollar in Oregon comes from individual taxes, not from corporate revenue. So they have the resources to contribute to pay their share in what is clearly a society-wide, civilization-wide challenge. And then, of course, in addition to that favorable treatment, they just received a 40%, roughly 40% tax cut from the federal government and the Trump administration. So they have the resources available to lean into this solution with us. And we're not asking for a lot. 1% on their general revenues within the city of Portland for if that company has $500,000 in local revenues, in addition, of course, to meeting the $1 billion national box they have to check as well, that's $5,000 on that $500,000. So it's very targeted, very narrow, and devoted to very specific purposes from companies that can afford it and that have climate impact. You can hear the full interview with Alan on episode 63 of our Local Energy Rules podcast, published in October 2018. I also spoke with James Valdez, a member of the Portland Clean Energy Community Benefits Fund startup team, in December 2020, about what happened with the initiative. That passed overwhelmingly. The voters of Portland supported it on on almost a two-to-one margin. It was over 65% of the vote. And so it's been a couple of years since that November, and we've been really busy in the last couple of years getting the program launched. As James explains, the two years between the passage of the ballot measure and our interview highlight the focus on procedural equity, including seating an advisory committee made up of community members. One of the milestones was the formation of the committee itself and having a decision-making body of these volunteers that can help guide the program. And then they really worked along with community input. That was in November of 2019, so just about a year ago that we had a fully seated decision-making body. And then we identified the need really for guiding principles for the program and to have values that then were leading the other decision-making for the launch. And so there was a public input process for that and community engagement to develop a set of guiding principles. And we have those posted on our website, but I'll, I guess, summarize them here. The first guiding principles of the program be justice-driven, advanced system change to address historic and current discrimination, that it be community-powered, that there be a, a real trust in the community knowledge, experience, innovation, and leadership, that the program be accountable, that it's implementing our funding in a transparent way with oversight and engagement processes that promote continuous learning. I mean, that really all of the kind of vessel for that or the, the umbrella for that is that we're focused on climate action with multiple benefits, that we're not just seeking the lowest kind of market-based carbon emissions per dollar, but we're really embedding social values and looking at who benefits from the different deployments of funds or different projects that arise from Portland Clean Energy Fund. So that's kind of the overall umbrella is that dual climate action with social benefit. And so we then adopted those guiding principles, and that was in April of 2020. And during that process, we're also putting together the infrastructure and programmatic pieces for the first grant RFP or request for proposal. And so that is really kind of opening the door to community ideas to apply for grant funding. And that also went through a public comment process and period where we're making all the scoring of how grants will be evaluated, transparent, and people people who are applying or nonprofit organizations that apply can see those criteria ahead of time. That was really finalized throughout the summer. In June was kind of the opening of the public comment period. And then just a few weeks ago, we were able to release kind of the first RFP, $8.6 million worth of funding. However, there was one other milestone that we thought was necessary and important and the grant committee helped provide a vision for, which was a recognition that a lot of smaller nonprofit organizations, especially those serving marginalized populations or Black, Indigenous, and people of color, 
didn't have the capacity and resources to apply for grant funds. They may not be familiar with some of those processes or have it have the grant writing training or have the kind of organizational technology that they need, especially kind of in our current time of COVID and not being able to engage with the communities they serve in a normal way, kind of in person. So we created something that we called application support grant funds, which was a opportunity for nonprofit organizations to receive a small amount of funding, about $5,000 per organization, to get ready to apply for either Portland Clean Energy Fund grants or other grants related to climate and, and social equity. We put those out oh, about uh, two months ago or so, and we had overwhelming interest in those resources. We had over 130 applicants to that process and were able to fund 42 organizations to prepare themselves to get ready. And so that application was very short. It was one page survey monkey form where we really were finding a kind of balance between ensuring that there were indeed nonprofit organizations that kind of were meeting the basic criteria of eligibility, but that really we're focusing on those that are small organizations and those that serve Black and Indigenous people within Portland. And so we had a prioritization to reach organizations that perhaps hadn't previously seen themselves as being involved in climate change work or weren't as aware of the grant opportunities and processes. And so we're now in the process of distributing those funds and getting organizations ready to apply for this round of funding that is is open right now. Again, that $8.6 million. And in future rounds, we'll have significantly more resources. The kind of annual budget for the Portland Clean Energy Fund is more on the order of $40 to $60 million per year. But this introductory round is kind of a ramp up to that full funding amount. You can learn more about the Portland Clean Energy Community Benefits Fund and even see diagrams of the project funding on the show page of my full interview with James, episode 120 of Local Energy Rules. In Seattle, citizens similarly targeted high-wealth businesses to source a new fund to support city priorities. Of the $230 million per year Jumpstart Seattle tax revenue, $20 million will be dedicated to equitable clean energy and climate work, or what locals call a Green New Deal. Like Portland, the program will be overseen by an advisory board. Jill Mangalaman, Executive Director of Got Green, and Abigail Huaner, Equitable Program Development Manager at Puget Sound Sage, joined me in October 2020 to talk about the organizing effort and intent of Seattle's new fund. Here's Abigail describing how the fund works. Jumpstart is the progressive revenue legislation that the Seattle City Council passed this summer in July. It's estimated to bring around $214 million a year. And who's paying for it? It's businesses with payroll expenses for employees with at least $150,000 in annual compensation. It is structured in three tiers. Businesses with payroll expenses up to $100 million, the rates are 0.7% of employees with annual compensation between $150,000 and $400,000. And then it will be 1.7% of those with annual compensation above $400,000. And then the other tier, the next tier is for businesses with payroll expenses between $100 million and $1 billion. And the tax rate for that is 0.7% for employees with annual compensation between $150,000 and $400,000. And then 1.9% for those with annual compensation above $400,000. And then the third tier is for businesses with payroll expenses over $1 billion. And the rate for that is 1.4% for, for annual compensation between $150,000 and $400,000. And then 2.4% for those annual compensation above $400,000. And businesses with payroll expenses under $7 million are exempted from this. Jill explained how the community came to the decision to do a progressive tax to support this work. We were doing a lot of talking with community during the time we were pushing for the Green New Deal. And that kept coming up the question, like, how are we going to pay for this? You know, this is very ambitious to transition the entire economy, right, to one that's sustainable. It became very clear from like all our conversations and surveys that people wanted something that wasn't going to fall on the backs of working people. And Abigail said, like, sales tax is really regressive. There were some initiatives on the table around property tax levies. And it's still like we can't keep continue to squeeze everyday people who are not responsible, right, for these climate disasters. 
that we really should be going to the top 1% or the corporations. So it was very clear alignment with what we were hearing from the community. Jill also explained the intersection between the work of Got Green and its allies to protect vulnerable communities from gentrification and the city's clean energy aims. Considering that we view displacement as something that also creates pollution and, and, and increases climate impact, the more that we can keep people rooted in place and uh, in, in with stable housing, the more resilient they'll be. And also we can reduce carbon emissions as well at the same time. And so it's a complementary planning. But also by building housing, that's also the potential for creation of jobs, as well as potential for creating green infrastructure, making it more accessible to the local communities here, the working class and BIPOC communities. Something that came up while we were advocating for a Green New Deal is like around the transition. How do we move away from fossil fuels? And so like not just new infrastructure, but also existing infrastructure Mm -hmm. needs to make that transition. And again, how do we support the communities and and the workers in that transition. There has to be some real investments. And right now, yeah, there aren't a whole lot of programs out there that help support the costs to go from natural gas and oil to electric or healthier types or solar. There's very little support and programming for that. So we really want to make sure that if we are going to make those goals by 2030 (laughs) to move away from climate pollution, that we actually do so in an intentional way that doesn't leave any of our community behind. I think that the more that we can continue to have like really strong place-based solutions and support the local communities in building up their resilience plans, whether it's increasing their food security or emergency plans or creating centers where folks can access health services in times of crisis or, or even shelter during wildfire. All of these will help not only create jobs, right, like locally, but also will help kind of meet many of our goals at the same time. They should be around these areas of affordable housing, so they should go hand in hand together. See a lot of potential for partnership and also a lot of alignment and goals. But yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. The Green New Deal is a it's a it's a big deal (laughs) and much needed. Minneapolis also pursued local funding for its clean energy efforts. As we shared in the fourth episode of this Public Power series, episode 167 of Local Energy Rules, the city concluded its municipalization campaign with a compromise clean energy partnership between the city and its utilities. However, the city also developed its own new source of funding via its utility franchise fee. By increasing the fee by a half a percentage point, the city brought in an additional two to three million dollars per year to fund equitable clean energy work, from solar on low-income properties to cost-sharing energy efficiency for local businesses. For more about the Minneapolis fight for equitable clean energy, listen to prior Local Energy Rules interviews with City Council members Cam Gordon and Jeremy Schrader. We conclude by looking beyond cities and utilities to a novel community-centered approach to advancing clean energy and climate goals. In Iowa, Andy Johnson organized one of the country's first energy districts, modeled on soil and water conservation districts of the New Deal era. He explains how the Winnesheek Energy District in northeastern Iowa has accelerated clean energy deployment by focusing on technical assistance. So efficiency and renewables are essentially the, the two parts to one big game here, and we can all save tremendously on efficiency. It's not very sexy, and it's not always easy to accomplish. The numbers out there are always thrown around and said, well, 20 to 30 percent of just about everybody's energy use, whether it's a business or a home or a farm or whatnot, could easily be saved through efficiency, and it's true that it could be a saved through efficiency, but it's not always easy, especially when you talk, for example, whole building weatherization, insulation, and shell. So a lot of what we do actually try to do is is actual boots-on-the-ground technical assistance. Um, there are a lot of great local energy efforts out and around and uh, doing good things. What most of them don't do is that sort of technical analysis and implementation with customers. And it's not easy. There's good reasons why people don't do it. Traditionally, it's been done, it's been understood as energy auditing. Many people have had an energy audit. Most, unfortunately, that have had an energy audit haven't actually implemented any major changes from it. It's just the way the the industry has has evolved over the years. So what we try to do is a a much broader level of, of energy analysis than a typical audit. We try to include the efficiency and renewables opportunities 
We look carefully at the economics, and then we try and help people make those changes. And we've done this with hundreds of homes and businesses and, and now farms increasingly here in Northeast Iowa, and to conversion rates of 50 to 95 percent in terms of projects that actually get done. So that work is, is a little bit costly and it's a little bit intense, but we're seeing really great results there. So, of course, the other side of what we do is a lot of the engagement, outreach, education. We've done a great deal of efficiency, as, as we mentioned. Renewable energy is, is on a tear here, and we've worked with all kinds of partners, for example, the community college there and Luther College and our entities and solar installers. So there's a lot of catalyzing that can be done when you have an organization whose mission is to do it. Of course, it takes energy to build that organization. Here in Decora, we're pretty confident we have more solar per capita than any other town in, in Iowa now and possibly any other town in the Midwest. It's really rolling along. And again, it's not easy to build those organizations to try something new that's not just a subset of, say, a city government or a county government or something else, but it pays dividends. And what part of what we're really excited about now is that we're talking with neighboring counties and startup groups nearby and far away about starting an energy district and a network of energy districts. And we think that'll really create increasing um, movement, awareness, power, and, and everything else. So we'll share resources, we'll share some services, but everyone needs that local mouthpiece catalyst for change. You can hear my full interview with Andy in episode 35 of Local Energy Rules. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules, the sixth and final episode in our multi-part series, The Promise and Peril of Publicly Owned Power. We hope you enjoyed hearing about strategies that cities and communities have employed when public power is improbable. We also hope you've enjoyed the entire series, covering an arc from why cities want public power to why it's not a panacea. You can find all six episodes on the Local Energy Rules podcast feed. Episode 163 is the first of the series, and episode 170 is the last, with a couple of bonus episodes sprinkled in. If you're working to support community and city-level equitable clean energy progress, we also have many other resources on the website of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Our interactive community power toolkit provides case studies and sample ordinance language of city-level actions. Our community power map shows the policy environment in each state and the location of every existing municipal electric utility. And our wide range of research explores the technology and market structures that can prioritize local and community ownership of clean energy. Local Energy Rules is produced by me and Maria McCoy with editing and sound production by audio engineer Drew Birschbach. Tune back into Local Energy Rules every two weeks to hear more powerful stories of communities taking on concentrated power to transform the energy system. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.